Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 43, Alchemy and the Future of Esotericism with Mark Stavish. Mark is an esotericist, author, and director of studies at the Institute for Hermetic Studies in Pennsylvania. And in this episode, we speak with him about alchemy, spagyrics, keeping the end goal in mind, the future of esotericism, mastering time, space, the importance of group work, and how to start a small group. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, consider sharing these episodes with your friends liking and rating us on iTunes, and uh, hitting us up on Patreon, patreon.com slash plantcunning. Okay, thank you. Okay, so today we have Mark Stavish on the Plant Cunning Podcast, and Mark is an author of over 30 books on esotericism, the director of studies at the Institute for Hermetic Studies, and a very interesting fellow. So how are you today, Mark? I'm good. You've also been a student and practitioner of esotericism for over 40 years. Is that correct? Uh, that would be correct. That's a, that's a long time. And you said that you, um, you grew up in a family with esotericism. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, coming out of uh, German folk magic, but also early 20th century Rosicrucianism and New Thought, uh, you know, my, my great uncle on my maternal side was, was deeply involved in all of this. And I even attended meetings with him. I mean, he was born in 1900. So uh, at a wow. very young age, I was able to attend things with him. And of course, uh, his, some of his sisters were involved in, in different de- degrees of things. And his father was considered uh, really uh, uh, a Hexenmeister, which is kind of a, uh, an interesting approach because that meant that he was skillful in the use of the sixth and seventh books of Moses, ah. which um, for some has some interesting connotations. So uh, I was yeah. asked several years ago when Joseph Peterson was reissuing the sixth and seventh books of Moses in a, in a very fine edition, by the way, through Ibis Press, and just a spectacular book if I would write the jacket blurb for it. So that's me on the back of it. If, if anyone reads it. Yeah. Well, my, my family is also, my mom's side is Pennsylvania Dutch, so they weren't very magical, but it's a, it's a really interesting tradition, but also uh, I've heard that in like Indian traditions uh, to be born into a family of esotericists or, you know, spiritual practitioners is a, is, means you have really good karma. So <laughs> probably did some good things in, in previous lives. <laughs> Well, one would hope. Uh, I think, however, many people don't understand the nature of karma and in reincarnation. And, and this gets into what we talk about a bit later, is that it, there's various types and the, the history of Pennsylvania German folk magic in particular is ripe with just, you know, fantastic stories of witch wars. Ah. And um, you know, we can talk about that in another episode. That, that's always lots of fun. But, you know, the notion of, you know, we, we go where we're most inclined uh, fortunately, I, I guess I had some good inclinations because it seemed to have served me well in that direction. So uh, I, I encourage all of your listeners to get out there and, uh, you know, do good things for their karma so that at least they have an opportunity to 
pick up these studies again in the future. Yeah, that's I think that's very good in general. So another another book that I think um, would be interesting for our readers if they haven't read it already is your book, uh, The Path of Alchemy, which I found very interesting and helpful for uh, kind of understanding what alchemy is mm -hmm. and what spagyrics are. Um, how did you get into alchemy? Well, thank you very much uh, regarding the book. Um, I had uh, initially wanted to study it, study it back in the early 80s when Friday Albertus uh, still had his uh, school in Salt Lake City. And uh, I had contacted them and it just so happened uh, Albertus had just passed and uh, they weren't certain what was going on with the school. So the course of study, which originally had been seven years, had right prior to his passing been reduced to three years. And uh, with that said, uh, it still would have been worth attending to to be in the presence of uh, the great curmudgeonly alchemist himself. And of course, some of the people there who I would later meet, by the way. So I was very fortunate in that regard. Now, many of the people associated with it were also part of Amorc and uh, the Rosicrucian Order Amorc. And there is a connection between Albertus and Amorc going back to the 40s. In fact, if you read the introduction to the book, you'll notice that I, I point out that historical uh, relationship between these different movements and, and how they come about. Now, within that framework, uh, Amorc and San Jose had begun offering alchemy classes as well. So, of course, they, they had come. And I think I was looking at maybe the third cycle of classes when I decided to go out there and, and you know, saved up my money to make the trip to the West Coast, a great pilgrimage, and take the class when the principal instructor, who I was going to see, of course, was no longer teaching, and I think he had died. So instead of taking a class on herbalism, which was kind of what was being substituted, I said, now I'll wait my time. And eventually, uh, sometime in the early 90s, I would get a copy of Gnosis Magazine, and in the back would be an ad for this group in Boulder, Colorado, I think it was at the time, L-P-N-P-O-N. And it was a French alchemical organization. I'll write to them and see what happens. And uh, as a result, I get on their mailing list and I get a few mailings. And that looks nice, but I'm not going to San Francisco for studying off someone I don't know. Uh -huh. And then eventually I got a mailing for Wheaton, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Hmm. And who is teaching but... Uh, Russ House and Jack Glass, and this French guy named Jean Dubuis. Well, I didn't know who Jean Dubuis was, but I knew who Russ and Jack were from Amorx. So I said, oh, I'm going to go. So this was a week-long, uh, five days, class on uh, spagyrics that I took with them for two hours a day, I believe it was. And then there was other presentations in the late morning, afternoon, and evening. And that was my introduction, not only to the philosophers of nature, and Jean Dubuis, and uh, but also all of these wonderful folks who were who were coming out of, you know, the Paracelsus school, that is uh, Albertus's school, and also Amorc at that time, and and it was just a, it was a great place to be, a lot of activity and a lot of wonderful things going on. So that's my how I got into alchemy. Wow, really wow, cool. yeah, and Jean Dubuis, he's a pretty he's a heavy hitter in regards to alchemy. What a uh, what an amazing surprise to find out who he who he was. Yeah, and, and I think this is um, you know this is something we have to keep in mind, particularly now as uh, 
the degree of culture has has spread courtesy of social media and other means that we see folks putting stuff on the internet about their most recent adventures in alchemy or spagyrics. And uh, you have to really take a lot of that with a grain of salt, <laughs> alchemical salt, so to speak, because, <laughs> you know, what are they doing? Who are they? What's their background? What is the proof that any of this is, is good? I mean, in fact, when I say good, I mean, it's going to work and is healthy because you can kill yourself doing this. Now, not necessarily with plant work. You got to go out of your way to kill yourself with plant work. But in mineral work, you can, you can get injured. You can get a one-way trip to the astral real fast. And th that happened to, uh, didn't quite happen, but that almost happened to Israel Regardi on two occasions. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, he was actually quite skilled in the laboratory. People don't know that, but, um, you know, you get a whiff of uh, antimony fume and his lungs got damaged. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, you got to be pretty careful. And Israel, yeah, he was one of the, you know, luminaries of the last century. Like, as far as, I mean, his books are still being read everywhere. So <laughs> he, that can still happen to somebody like that. So, yeah, that's, it's really a, a word of warning. Well, it is. And it's important to, you know, be skillful and be patient. Uh, we say that over the laboratory of uh, every alchemist should be the word patience. Yes. Yeah, and make haste slowly, right? Yeah, that the, you you have to, because it's not always it easy to get impatient and ruin your work, particularly when you're dealing with calcining things. But at the same time, it um, it it is a, a sense of what was that Crowley the phrase he used. Uh, the lust for results, you know, we're, we're overwhelmed with the final outcome and therefore we miss the importance of the process. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the process is the teaching mechanism. The process is really in some ways um, how we get the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, yeah, go ahead. I definitely want to get into the process too, but before we go on too much, can you define for our listeners what alchemy is and maybe what its purpose is? Well, alchemy is really simple. It's, it's, it's a demonstrable feedback or relationship between mind, energy, and matter, you know, which there's no deception as we would say. I mean, it's easy to deceive ourselves with magical rituals and other things, but with alchemy, either you've transformed something you haven't, and you've only transformed something if you first transformed something within yourself, according to Paracelsus. Technically, alchemy deals with mineral work, and plant work is spagyrics, a term coined by Paracelsus, meaning separate and recombine, because that's what we do. You make a tincture, as you would in any other plant work, and then you let it sit for a while. And that sitting can be an alchemical month of about 40 or 42 days, or it can be a process whereby you speed it up. I've done some tinctures in a few hours or a few days. You know, if I have the right plant, you know, if it's a nice fresh plant and good strong alcohol or mercury, as we call it, and a nice heat source, you can push it. But normally it, you let it sit for a period of time and then you strain it out. Now, most herbalists will take that tincture, that alcohol now, and uh, that is what they use as their product. That's it. In spagyrics, you take that plant matter now and you calcine it or burn it to an ash. 
and you burn it to a fine white ash whenever possible, which takes some doing, takes a little bit of skill. And then you take it and you recombine it with the tincture. Now that's the simple definition or simple example. There's other ways of doing it as well, where you take the tincture and you separate that out several times. So you distilling off the alcohol, then you recombine it back in with the very little bit of essential oils, as we'll say, that are left in the bottom there, the tarry, sticky substance. And you don't want to burn it. You got to be careful. And then you separate it out again and again and again. And the idea is that each time you do this, it gets more and more refined. And then finally, at one point, you will take that tincture and drop by drop, you will put it into a crucible where these salts are. And you may not get a lot of salts once you calcine them. You may have to augment them with additional salts of the same plant or sometimes with sea salt and, and not the white sea salt that we see that's taken from, you know, like Salt Lake City, but um, like the Celtic sea salt, which is gray, which is naturally evaporated off the ocean, uh, off the, uh, you know, the, the, the coastline. So you will take that and of course that's ground up. So the powder so absorbs it and you, and you drop it in over a low heat. And then to some point it can't take any more and it kind of congeals and you have what we call a plant stone. Now wow. that plant stone then has the capacity to impart its essence to say like distilled water or uh, a glass of red wine or to separate out uh, the essential elements in a jar or glass filled with the same plant instantly. And that's cool. quite interesting to see. And the, what they do in that case is it's actually put on a thread. It's a little thread is put in so you don't lose it at the bottom of the <laughs> jar or the, or the glass. Now there is another variation where that tar doesn't harden. It doesn't congeal in that same sense, but kind of more has the consistency of taffy. And you can take a thin slice of it, very, very thin, and you can take it in water or wine or something and uh, see what the effects are. Now, the idea being that for you as a practitioner, these effects will be more of what's called an initiatic nature. Whereas for someone else, it'll probably be more health oriented. By initiatic nature, we mean it will give you some glimpses or insights into particular psychic dimensions. Wow, that's a very uh, detailed but concise, mm -hmm. you know, intro to what spagyrics are. That's, that's really great. So, but there's also, um, for me, like, I always wonder, like, where is the dividing line between, like, what, what actually makes a spagyric? So, like, if you read Manfred Junius, you know, you do all this, you separate the essential oil and everything first, and you do that whole complicated, more complicated version. But then I also know people who will not use the hour or the day of the planet but will calcinate the salts and we'll call that a spagyric would you would you like would you call that a spagyric i i'm sure it might be but if you're not using the planetary hours um uh, and days 
which are meant to augment or assist the process, you know, I would have to see what the final product is that they have and compare it. Mm. Because I, that's part of the same thing with calcination. I mean, I was with a friend the other night and he was just saying how he's had this distillation running and it's just not a drop. Nothing's coming over. Hmm. And I said, well, did you check the planet, the, the lunar cycles? And I've seen that in my own work. You know, stuff will go, 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 go. And then you get into the, you know, waning cycle and boom, it just doesn't work. Nothing comes over. Wow. Now we see that with the ocean, right? Yeah. If you have heading towards a full moon, then the way the, the you know the ocean rises. We have bigger waves. So you attempt to do your best to imitate nature and observe nature. We are the handmaids of nature, and in that case, nature is also our handmaid. Huh? Yeah, it's like co-creating with nature, but I, you know, distilling the the essences. <laughs> From what's already there, making it and re, you know recombining it into into like a more concentrated version, I guess. But so it's the subjective well, that's correct. experience it's is like really the 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 hallmark for you of of how powerful this bajiric is is like what what happens to you. Well, that's all I'm really concerned with. What happens to me? Because our goal here is the path of return, right? So what does that mean? That means you know, illumination, awakening, enlightenment, insight, the freedom of myself from ignorance, the, you know, the freedom of myself from bondage. So that's really, if, if this is helping me do that, then that's great. If it's not really doing that or is only doing it to a lesser degree, then I have to uh, assess what I'm doing in my outcomes, you know, mm -hmm. Well, how is this working for me on my path? And, and, you know, helping others is a good part of the path. However, it's not the all of the path. Because I can only help others to the degree that I've helped myself. Yeah. It's just all there is to it. So true. So you talk about in um, your book, In the Path of Alchemy, meditating and visualizing the end goal while you're creating a certain elixir or spagyric um and so is that why it's important because it's you know like what you were just talking about um not just for the outcome of the tincture but for the outcome of the practitioner well that's part of the feedback loop too the tincture is potentized in part by your your energetic field mm. the creation of this creates an energetic field too and mm. this is tangible um, when you work around a furnace, doing some distillation, you're in the field, you're in the sphere. You don't necessarily notice it till you leave, but it radiates out a roughly the size of a, a magic circle, about nine feet. Okay. And th the importance of this is, is that a, a force field is created. Now, we already are a force field. Our, our, our bodies, our minds create this force field. But this is an accentuation or potentizing of that force field. That force follows our thoughts, our ideas, our images, our, our mind. 
So when we begin anything, we always begin with the end in mind. Well, if you know what you're doing, you begin with the end in mind. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a serious statement. Yeah. What is the end here? What is the purpose here? And this is of anything that we do. You know, yeah. what is the, the purpose of this podcast? You know, what is the purpose of this business? What is the purpose of this, you know, book, this project? What is the purpose? Why am I raking the grass? Hmm. You know, because if we do things with the end in mind, we will know how to get there. Yeah, it's kind of like driving and putting your, your eyes on the, the horizon of where the road is. <laughs> looking at where you're going instead of if you focus too closely then you, you can you know it's, it's a lot a rockier of a drive mm-hmm. well and, and your chances of a collision increase dramatically too yeah so <laughs> when we when we look at projects that we undertake we notice the, the successful ones have a clear end in mind uh, when we look at projects that we've undertaken that have not been successful or failed, it's because we did not have a clear end in mind. And with that, we lost our vital fire, our enthusiasm, or became terribly enmeshed in a bunch of details and again, lost our fire. So, so from- when we undertake a process, a magical process, a creative process, the beginning of each day, why am I getting out of bed today? We think, what is the one thing I have to accomplish today? What is the one thing I have to do this morning, the one thing this afternoon? And then we build a life and we do the same thing with building an alchemical tincture, spagyric tincture. What is the purpose of this tincture? What do I expect or want it to do? And if I focus on that, that potentizes it in the same sense that you potentize uh, a talisman. There's a clear relationship between spagyric tinctures and talismanic magic. One is a consumable talisman. The other isn't. It's wearable or partially wearable. Now, when you deal with minerals, and this uh, to some degree is the same, I guess, when casting metallic talismans. But when you deal with mineral alchemy, that force field, particularly with antimony, is roughly 50... I'd say anywhere between about 50 yards in diameter. Wow. It's pretty big. And it's, yeah. it's, it's tangible. And the story goes that uh, as soon as you begin to work with antimony, they take notice of you. Antimony does or yeah, other well, beings? The other beings, particularly uh-huh. those who govern the path. Ah. Now, this is true in any dimension because our thoughts are things. So as soon as you begin to think about undertaking some kind of evocation, and most people associate that with, say, Goisha or something of that nature, the beings take notice of it. Because it can only happen if you're trying to place yourself on the same wavelength. Right. It begins the moment it becomes a concept. I mean, a child is... You know, a a child begins at the moment of conception, not at the moment of birth. Yeah. But then where does that idea, where does does that idea come in your mind? Like, where where does the conception come from? Well, that's up to you to figure out. That's from within (laughs) you somehow, somewhere. 
Yeah. That's a deep morass of confusion we call your psyche. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So to to get back to like this, it, it looks like the spagyrics are a spectrum, right? And you can go from something that doesn't work very well to something that's very, very powerful. Um, do people ever like with talismanic uh, rituals, like do you do like very in, in specific astrological elections for tal- for uh, spagyrics ever? Like making sure that, you know, if you're doing a Jupiterian herb, you know, the Jupiter is in a, the sign of its domicile and on the midheaven or something or stuff like that. Well, you can. Now, I just want to state it's not about one being less effective than the other. It's about the potency uh, is really a, is a is a direct relationship or indicator of, of the preparer. Ah. ah, so someone I mean, I've seen someone take a, a glass of wine and bless it. And that has more potency than many full blown rituals I've seen. <laughs> cool. Okay, so it's about the individual. It's about the mechanism there of energy transfer. Yeah. So, you know, but there's different ways to do it that are more complex. So you have a variety of possibilities of of making it in different ways, depending upon your situation, which is why I get to say this. Everybody listening out here will benefit from working with the creation of spagyric tinctures or products. Everyone. You can start out in an incredibly simple method. Really, it's so easy. Yes, it can be time consuming. And yes, it's going to test your patience. But that's the point. That's part of your growth as an individual through doing this. And the benefits you get from this are going to be tangible and measurable. You're going to see it. You're going to experience it. And then you can go on. You can become as devoted to this as you want and and become engaged in incredibly complex plant uh, work spectacular plant work i know people who that's all they do is plant work they do very little if no mineral work and i know some people all they do is mineral work you know but the plant work is just it's just great anyone can do some of it Mm -hmm. and everything you learn in that process will be transferable to other areas of your we'll say spiritual practice but also into your real life into your day-to-day life so yeah. it's it just, it's, it's wonderful for everyone out there. Well, I, I hope that everyone starts, starts on it and, and not, and don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Sometimes, you know, like I've, I've seen this in myself, like, I don't want to just get started because it's not the most bestest ever election and the, you know, the most perfect possible ideal thing so well, even just getting started with dried herbs and alcohol right and then you can go into fresh i mean fresh whenever possible mm-hmm. and then you can go into distilling and refining your alcohol making it sharper making what we call philosophic and then you can move into making your own alcohol off of red wine and making that sharper and philosophic and each step as you progress not what someone's telling you is oh well that's the way it's, this is the real way to do it no each step as you progress, you get better and better and you understand the process better and better. And, and you have accomplishments in and of and for yourself. Not mm-hmm. for Facebook, not for Instagram, not for some website or so you can start selling stuff. This is for you and you alone and maybe a handful of people who can appreciate it. 
And, you know, that, that notion of perfectionism is, is a, is a cruelty right now that, that is spreading across the occult community and, and has really entrenched itself in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, but the perfectionism is something is, is a real curse. And I, I jokingly uh, like to blame, uh, you know, Chick Cicero for this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of you may know uh, uh, Chick Cicero is uh, head of the Hermetic Order of Golden Dawn out of uh, Florida. He's a great guy. Uh, and he is a master craftsman. And years ago, he and his wife published a book, uh, How to Make the Golden Dawn Tools. And they were spectacular when you look at the pictures. And uh, I really, you look at that and say, well, I give up. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> you know, but you can't, you can't give up. You have to make your own. And so what I did for folks who would really just, you know, I, I have to tell Chick this uh, when I'm, if I meet him in person sometime um, that, you know, I've told people, no, no, you have to go online and you have to look at the photographs of, of Yates's uh, tools and Regardi's tools because those were the ones that they made in war. And you can see, oh yeah, that's closer to what I can make, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was talking to an artist a week ago and uh, he did um, uh, impressionist paintings. And I said, well, you know, you do a very nice job, but if I tried that, it would look like a 12 year old with a crayon. And uh, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, when we look at these things, they're so good, it's almost intimidating. And that's part of the purpose of overcoming our sense of limitation. Yeah, You know, the whole initiatic process of which herbalism was once a part uh, is part of that pro process of overcoming our, our narrow sense of limitation, our narrow sense of self, and growing as a person, and our capacities as a person. And alchemy likes to take that and turn it into, put it on steroids, so to speak, or, or you know, really uh, ramp up the, the, the voltage and turn that into a process of not just as a person, but as a person in the cosmos. Mm. You know, what is my path and how am I maturing into an adult in the cosmos? Mm. So whenever I, I, I know where you're coming from and you know, when I just made my tools, it was the, the best thing because it was far easier than I thought. Yeah. It's about the process of doing it. And this is the important part again, not rushing, being patient, making a firm decision that this is what I'm going to do and completing it. You know, we, we talk about that in terms of daily life, but that is all the more important when we undertake some kind of esoteric practice. Success compounds upon itself. Mm -hmm. Failure compounds upon itself. Mm. You cannot escape that eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. <laughs> Okay, and, and you cannot escape it in, in life in our terms of our, the, our, the fruit of our actions. So when you have a clear idea in mind, a clear beginning, you've dedicated yourself to its outcome, even if it's something small, that's okay. As long as you begin it and you finish it. Yeah, those are wise words. Yeah, you had brought up um, red wine as the alcohol distilled from red wine is the most suitable alcohol for spagyric tinctures a minute ago. Um, and I was just curious why that is. Is that tradition or do you have any insights on that? Well, the rumor has it because it's more solar and the color red is associated with the solar energies and the color, the energies of the blood. That's, that's probably, cool. you know, the, the reason most often given. I Makes see. sense. And I guess before we uh, get off of the subject of alchemy, um, 
I've also heard that Jean Dubuis has said that mushroom spagyrics can be very negative for people and that he warns against uh, utilizing them. But then I've also seen lately that mushroom spagyrics have become a very big thing, especially for um, medicinal mushrooms like reishi and chaga. But do you have, because you have studied with Jean Dubuis, do you have any insights on that? On, on like, should people be using mushrooms or is like, is it dangerous or not? Because if it is dangerous, people should know about it, I think. Well, you know, I've got, with all the rain, I've got 12 different types of mushrooms growing in my yard right now. I'm taking pictures of them. I don't know what any of them are, and I'm certainly not going to try them to find out. And, you know, so are they dangerous? Well, sure, they can kill you if you don't know what you're doing. Now, let's assume you do know what you're doing and the stuff isn't necessarily going to drop you dead on a heartbeat. I do believe that the medicinal tinctures are different and that he was not referring to that. I do believe what he was referring to is the use of mushrooms to engage in psychic states. Because... Uh, More like psilocybin. Right. Because while these can offer a temporary insight, they, they are fundamentally toxic. You know, that, that's why when you, uh, when you see a lot of people, you know, the, what they talk about the after effects, you know, the after effects on many of these products are because they're detoxifying. It's a poison. And that's what's affecting their, their psychic states, their psychological states. Now, again, can they have tremendous insights? Some can, some do. But, you know, a... Um, a door can open with a key or a sledgehammer. And we have to be very careful that we don't take a sledgehammer, you know, to our mind. Right. And I've known many people who've used psychotropics and had very reasonable lives and were successful. I've also known a lot more who destroyed themselves. So some people had discipline and knew when to stop. Others were unable to because of the nature of the experience. And this goes back to why do we undertake psychic or experiences to begin with or spiritual practices? And it's because we don't like our lives. Mm. If you liked where you were, you wouldn't want to change it. Yeah. So, you know, we have to be honest about that. You don't want this experience. You want to change it. And that can be anything. That can say, I want to lose weight. I want to go to the gym. You know, I want to meet new people. I want to get enlightened. (laughs) You know, you have to be honest. There's a tremendous amount of dishonesty in in contemporary spirituality. So when you then engage in that practice, particularly with mushrooms, and are entering into the psychic domains, which are very close to the earth, the capacity to you know, become a member of, you know, the, the Lotus Eaters. You're just constantly in this dream state because it's better than where you're at. It's very easy to destroy yourself. Yeah. And a spagyric tincture is just going to potentize that product even more so. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've, I've, seen, I've seen people who have been destroyed by psychedelics too. And then I also, in my case, like they were helpful at a point, you know, when I, uh, in opening my mind, 
but uh, after a certain point, they're not helpful at all. <laughs> you know, well, I was a drug and alcohol counselor for years. You know, and, and people seem to get upset when I tell them about you know, you know, the problems of marijuana as a gateway drug. You know, or, or in terms of uh, late adolescent psychosis, they get all upset about that. I said, well, you know, you can get upset; it doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the fact that it can also be good for, uh, you know, people on on recovery for, uh, you know, cancer recovery or some other types of uh, medicinal uses. Same with LSD. I'm, I'm telling you not to take it. But, you know, you've got guys with post-traumatic stress disorder who under controlled conditions where they're prepped for it, it has a tremendous therapeutic effect along with their psychiatric uh, uh experiences it helps them recover from deep trauma yeah well why is that possible because it's very very strong Mm. and anything with a great deal of toxicity has a great deal of energy just ask any guy who's dated a scorpio girl you know (laughs) and you know it's a great deal of toxicity means a great deal of energy a great deal of energy means a great deal of potentiality, but it also needs to be purified and, and properly directed. So it doesn't, so that you consume it, it doesn't consume you. Right. You need to work with it with discipline. And I guess this is where that, that old maxim know thyself comes into, into play because it, it's different for everybody. And there are people who, who can, you, you know, use psychedelics, in a disciplined way and like it can be beneficial for them for years but then there are people who who it can it can destroy so yeah i guess you got to know what what what's good for you and and truly no and this is not self-deceive yourself because by the time you find out it's too late right see that's the problem by the time you find out it's too late that's why you, you have to be very cautious with some things so, Mark, um, in talking about you, you talked briefly about the path of return and about always looking at the end goal. Um, so what is the end goal of spiritual practice and like what is the, the point of, of the path of return from your perspective? Well, again, it depends on who you ask, but generally speaking, we see that it is the removal of our ignorance and in the removal of our ignorance, we have a fullness or fruition of our potentiality and our possibilities. And what we, and what we can do, we bring ourselves to fruition as a being. And yeah. uh, we are no longer burdened by, you know, narrow and limited concepts. So you go beyond Saturn. <laughs> yeah. You can be Saturn and beyond. I think that's a good you, you way don't get beyond it. Saturn without discipline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the lesson of Saturn. Yeah. Discipline. And, and that, means, <laughs> that means facing things that you'd rather not. That means self-discipline. That means sacrifice. Uh, and it also means... understanding certain concrete realities mm-hmm. you know the, the the mushroom it takes you through the gate of saturn you know right to uh the wonderful lunar realms mm-hmm. fantasy and reflection the psychic domain psychic dimension it's very easy to get lost there the dream world 
quite literally the dream world. Yassad. Yeah. And the whole Yetzirah realm focusing mainly around Yassad. Because it's it's so um, attractive in its own way. Whereas reality here is harder. You know, you got to get up, get out of bed, make your bed, and then go do something productive. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess a... also Saturn is is death too, and one of the um, the thing the maxims of of esotericism through the ages to is that you must die while you're alive. Yeah, which is something we don't talk much about anymore. Yeah, because it doesn't sell well. <laughs> I mean, that seriously. That. the The notion of initiation is about learning how to overcome your limitations. And, and your sense of self. And for most people, that sense of self is firmly tied to the sensory input that stimulates them on a daily basis, giving rise to consciousness and awareness. So when that uh, stimulation ceases, they cease to be uh, aware, conscious, and they go to sleep. So for them, there's not much beyond this world, if anything at all. Whereas genuine esoteric practices are designed to provide us with a mechanism for the maintenance and the continuity of consciousness. Hmm. That's their purpose. That always has been their purpose. Everything else is secondary. So Mark, as someone who's been in this um, field or line of work for so long, um, what do you see as the future of esotericism? Well, it's going to bifurcate even more than it has. It's going to split. Hmm. You know, because we've, we've essentially been mugged by Saturn. Mm-hmm. And that's going to force choices. I mean, I wrote about this 15, 20 years ago. Well, it's no surprise. But what is a surprise is just how complacent, ineffective, and, and fundamentally... Um, useless most of contemporary spirituality and and, and esotericism has been and it's demonstrated itself in the last four to eight years because it's allowed itself to become absorbed with politics you know an, an esoteric practice is about one's inner awakening and if you have those methods and you're working them and you have that awakening that's fine when that no longer happens those movements tend to collapse down into religious movements and religion is a broad term here, but you, now you're no longer focusing on personal experience. You're focusing on Dogma. ideas, ideas, okay. beliefs, Yeah, but you know, more collective than individual because pra- individual, you can have collective practice, but you always have individual experiences. Right. Okay. And then when, that you know kind of degrades and you, you don't really have any anything going on there then you degenerate down into you know political social action groups and that's what happened to all the churches that's why no one shows up <laughs> <laughs> but you know the, the the esoteric movements haven't figured that part out yet and not yeah. necessarily all the esoteric but other groups as well that includes mostly the the buddhist groups in the west and all these things as well mm-hmm. so what's going to happen is that as, as these groups continue to 
become more obsessed with cultural phenomena, being a cultural presence. And we call that a culture, by the way. That is the presence of the occult in the popular mind, popular media, popular stuff. What's going to happen is, as it as it becomes wider and more available, it also collapses down. That is, it loses its uh, density. It loses its stuff. It's watered down. It's watered. It becomes water. Yeah, it just collapses and thins out like water. So what will happen is, you know, other groups are going to, in um, movements, are going to become harder to find, harder to get, and more expensive to deal with too, because this takes time and money. And, you know, contemporary spirituality has is, is been brought up on the lie about everything being for free, you know, like the internet. You know, I just for free, it's free, you know. Well, you know, it's not. You, you have to pay time, talent, and treasure to achieve anything that you want to do. And, you know, so the future is going to be that bifurcation. So we're going to see more and more select groups forming we're continuing to go along. And at some point, you know, the, the, well, what you're going to see is just the market becomes so saturated with pop stuff and even some gourmet stuff that uh, it maybe just overloads. Maybe it'll collapse and go away. I don't know. I can't speak to that too well, although I have a good sense of it. But more importantly, what I'm concerned with is the continuity of viable tradition and viable practice. How do we keep that going? Yeah. And that's where that's where you have to look at contemporary esotericism and be honest. As I said, the lie is it's a religion of adolescence for adolescence. I mean, the average book is written for someone between the ages of 15 and 28. As someone who's published, that's the reality of it. Right. Okay, you, you look at how people treat one another on the internet. They treat each other like children, regardless of their physical or physiological age. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, this movement has to push itself. It has to get to NETSAC. It has to learn to play well with itself and with others. You know, and, and to learn to get along and to create something stable. Because for all the talk of sustainability... Uh, there is none mm. because that requires sacrifice. Yeah. You know, and you know, the, and a lot of your listeners, you're the problem listener because you're going to sit there and nod your head and agree, but you're not going to do anything. Mm. You're going to sit there and nod your head and agree. And that's the problem. So instead of getting together with three or four or five of your friends or six of your friends and doing something, collective or communal where you actually have to work with one another and solve problems and in that sense pool resources and do it like adults and create something for your children and grandchildren you got to plan ahead you know that's what you need to do to have a tradition i mean continuity tradition means continuity continuity means sustainability we have very few traditions because we don't have continuity or sustainability because that takes money yeah that takes time that takes sacrifice and individual effort with a group saying we're building something not for ourselves but for our children and grandchildren we're thinking ahead that's what adults do and until people in this community do that they're not adults they're just simply not 
because by their fruits, you're going to know them. Now, they may have great libraries and they may have great book of the month collections and they may know a lot of wonderful stuff. And they may even have great podcasts and webcasts and websites and blogs. But that is not continuity, nor is it tradition. You have to get people together for that to happen. There has to be the exchange of so the energies in a group, which causes the, the transformation of the individuals in that group and the separating and recombining of those energies, just as it does in a spagyric or alchemical product. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a really great way to look at it. And you're, you're touching on like some of the importance of group work. And for me, like I found a esoteric group when I was 20 and being a part of that group has pretty, has been like how <laughs> I has affected me so much over the last, you know, 12 years, 13 years. And it, it's given me that, that con continuity, but also the ability to have work in small groups too, have like big, a big group and small groups. And you, you can't get that kind of uh, self-reflection with other people that you can get by yourself. Uh, because when I, I've, I've found like working in a small group, it's when I ask people, people, people questions um, and their answers allow me to see myself in them, you know? And they can see themselves in me and in other group participants instead of just seeing yourself in yourself and uh, getting trapped in your blind spots. Mm. Well, that's the myth of the solo practitioner. Mm. You know, if you look historically at solo practitioners within the historical frameworks of traditions, these are people who had already gone through their education and training. You know, they weren't starting out that way. You have to be able, it takes a tremendous amount of self-discipline and self-reflection and self, which, which I mean is honesty, to be able to really look at your blind spots and, and go into them. You know, the purpose of occult practice is not to make you feel good. In fact, <laughs> uh, if you're doing it right, you should have some really fantastic nightmares. Yeah. And it's not to say that you won't have wonderful insights and blissful moments as well. But how do you overcome your limitations if you're not able to look at the things that scare you? They don't just go away. In fact, they get amplified. And who are you going to turn to? Someone who hasn't done the work or hasn't been there before you? Who are you going to look it up on, on Google and, and trust your, uh, your psychic and spiritual health to... Uh, to whatever the browser brings to you spiritual <laughs> web md yeah spiritual <laughs> web md so you know there's problems with, with groups of course there are but that's part of the problems of growing as an individual too you know you have to learn to one maybe the person is right and you're the one who's wrong <laughs> right <laughs> maybe that's yeah. the true okay uh, second of all you know you're uh your opinion does not equal my 40 years of experience. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I say that seriously with the ease with which people can, you know, go on Amazon and write reviews. Yeah. Or, 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 or kids on, on TikTok can curse the moon. 
or curse the moon or something, right? To get involved <laughs> in stuff. It's like, guys, you know, the, that's why the bifurcation is going to strengthen because, you know, people like myself and the people I know, they don't want anything to do with that. Right. So good. Go ahead. You know, best fine. That's karma. You know, best go ahead. Mm. But the problem is when things go wrong and they will, because if you're doing this right, things will go wrong to bring up those areas of your life that you need to address. That's the Saturn part. It's going to bring you and hold your nose to it. And that's when people have all sorts of problems and, and they need to turn to people who can help them ride that wave. And you only can get that in a group where if all goes well, one or two or three of those people have been there before you. Yeah. And it's not easy finding an effective group. No, it's not. In fact, it's probably harder now more than ever. Mm-hmm. There's, there's too much static. Yeah, that was my next question is how do you get plugged in with a group? Well, very carefully. And I mean that in both ways. That uh, as someone who's done groups and run them, I'm very hesitant to let people in. Because, you know, you guard you well the Western Gate. Yeah. You know, one bad apple and all that is so true. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to get them out. And it's very difficult to get someone out once they're in. So you got to let people in slowly. Which means kind of be wary of anyone who wants you to come in too fast. Or once you're in there for a few months, uh, wants to groom you for leadership or some stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, getting into a group should be a process of developing a relationship of trust in both directions. Now, you have many groups which are correspondence or mail order, for example. Um how do you develop relationships of trust in that regard? Well, that's harder, but that's a different way of learning too. But you yeah. can learn to develop trust by meeting people involved on the local level. Now, they may not be the best example because they're, they're not the only example, but that may be a way too. you know, see if you can talk to people involved in the group. Get I think a sense that's really of, important. Because especially with the online thing happening, it's like everyone has enclosed themselves in their own echo chambers on Facebook or Instagram, and they won't talk to anybody who's not a part of their echo chamber. But like in the real world, if you're working with other people, there are people who disagree with you on a lot of things. But being able to work with them, uh, I mean, that takes maturity, and that's how you actually get stuff done. It is. Unfortunately, though, we see in the real world more and more of the echo chamber, particularly as the political ideology that infects academia and media, of which I've been a part of both, and esotericism, of which I've been a part, you know, spreads itself increasingly throughout different areas of, uh, of employment in the economy. Now, fortunately, there's some places where that can't touch. But at the end of the day, you, you have to still be able to learn to work well with others and also be able to ask questions. Ah, yeah. <laughs> See, if you, can't, if you can't ask the question, then you know what's the doctrine. Right. Then you know who's in charge. And I ask a lot of questions. Not necessarily because... And the problem is when in the questions I ask, people then assume... Uh, a belief or that I have a predisposed answer. No, I'm just asking the difficult question. I want to see what the answer is from, you know, that person or that person or this group. 
I'm just being maybe a bit of a nudge. But the, the idea is if I have to be able to ask the question. And, and that's where it is too. If, if you're in a group and someone is saying, you know, do X, Y, Z, and this will get you the philosopher's stone. Well, then you raise your hand and you say, well, can I see yours? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's the common sense aspect too. Also the about of promises, you know, what are, is this reasonable? We're talking about the total transformation of a being, you know, you're not going to do that in under 10 years. Yeah. You're probably not going to do it in under 50. <laughs> I'm saying seriously. Yeah. But you are going to make, you can make serious and significant transformations, but they're going to cost you. They're going to cost you a lot because otherwise you wouldn't be able to transform. Right. I mean, and, we're attached and, to our ignorances, our delusions. That's <laughs> right. So you have to, you have to constantly be willing to challenge yourself and, uh, and shut up, you know, and be quiet. And that means to listen and to learn, but, you know, to stop posting everything on social media. Uh, that, that, is, that is a terrible destruction to any progress, any yeah. whatsoever. To know, to will, to dare, and to... Uh... And to shut up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To be silent is an important part because the silence is also the silence in our own mind. Mm -hmm. Because you, you have to be able to get beyond the static in your own mind. That requires patience, practice, silence. We're talking about mastering time space here. I mean, this is, uh, this is big stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That silence, it, it also helps build creative tension and and uh, going with like the silence, the internal silence, if you're constantly just doing things for like Facebook likes or Instagram likes or shares, then, I mean, that's, those are the voices that are, that's going on in your mind when you're doing it, <laughs> when you're doing the ritual. Mm. Again, what is the purpose? What is the end in mind? Uh, I have, never posted an image of any alchemical product I've made. A few things that I've made for people for special reasons. Like I did some abramelin oil that Joe Leshevsky asked me to make years ago. I posted a picture of that because it had a beautiful rich red color, which few people see. Most only see the green color. It should be red. Um, I've never posted pictures of any product. I've never posted pictures of any ritual in operation. I've shared pictures of altars and it was specific to practices to get people to want to do the same. Like the liturgy of Hermes, I've shared pictures of that altar and variations of it that people have sent me because they're very, very nice. And I wanted to inspire people but you don't see anybody there in their robe or anything doing it. 
Yeah. You know, you, you have to learn to discretion, you know, discrimination is the first virtue on the tree of life discrimination. That means if this, then that you have an understanding of karma cause and effect that I must make a choice and that my choices have consequences. And we've, we are taking away that notion of discrimination and consequences from people. I should think we're taking it away, but we're not, we're not reminding them of it often enough. Mm-hmm. And by not reminding them, the idea is it doesn't really exist. It's the same thing with the other virtues on the tree. You know, we have to, we have to talk about them. You have to develop virtues. Virtues are personal strength. And you have to develop that personal strength so that you're not overwhelmed by whatever you may encounter, not only in your daily life, but in your psychic life, these psychic encounters. Because the beings will respond to you as you are. Mm. Now, the good news is, you know, angels are more or less friendly. (laughs) When I say more or less, meaning that, you know, they're kind of parental. (laughs) You know, they'll look at you with your best interests at heart and they won't give it to you. (laughs) Or they'll give you some variation of it, you know, so to speak. I'm using some kind of, you know, just to get the idea across. They won't give you the whole candy bar. Yeah. Right. And I'm, I'm actually writing an essay on this, uh, which is funny because it's a true story. And uh, Demon, on the other hand, you're an adult. You've called me here. I didn't come here on my own. You called me here. What do you want? Okay. What's in this for me? You want this? You know, you make a deal with the devil. The devil asks, do you want it? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you really sure? Yeah. Okay, good. You know, now, if everything falls apart, that's your fault because, you know, you were treated like an adult when you weren't. You were a child. You didn't know what you're getting into. Yeah. But you asked for it. You're giving a way out. You didn't have to take money from that loan shark. Well, you did. And now they're coming for, uh, they want the VIG. And you got nowhere to hide, you know? Yeah. And we we forget that these forces exist in the world around us. You know, we don't see the good stuff often because the good stuff is harmonious. It works well. But you certainly notice the unpleasant stuff because it creates disharmony. Yeah, that's the stuff that's off. Right, it's off. And you can look around a neighborhood and say, okay, is this is this a ghost realm? Is this a hell realm? Is this a God realm? You can tell mm. if you know what you're doing. You can judge a book by its cover. You know, that phase, phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover, comes from a time when you would buy a manuscript unbound and then you would bind it yourself. Mm. Well, you know, if I go to the mini mart late at night to get some coffee and on my way out, I pass the newsstand and I see... Uh, world news daily and playboy i'm pretty sure i know what's inside those books without having to look (laughs) i can judge them by their cover and you can also this is where archetypal images come in and where the doctrine of signatures come in which is to play such an important role in alchemy and plant work and spagyrics how do these energies work in and through and then ultimately manifest as a quality but a quantity a quality is, we'll say, the energetic aspect or personality or expression. And the quantity, we'll say, is the tangible material form. Yeah. 
And so I guess this even goes to like uh, occult uh, books, <laughs> for instance, or occult products. Like if they look like they're marketed for teenagers, maybe, maybe they're for teenagers. Yeah, they probably are. And, uh, and, you know, that's the problem that you look at the, the cover is designed in a way to get your attention. We have your attention for about one and a half seconds as you pass that aisle. And then we have it for no more than 10 to 15 once you physically picked up the book or opened the web page. So all of that is taken in mind when designing the graphic appeal of the book, all of it. And that's something, and that's something new. If you look at traditional books and traditional things going across cultures, you know, they have these wonderful names, whether it be the Solomonic magic or uh, the, the, the black razor's edge, or, you know, the, the grimoire of whatever, you know, this is all part of the marketing appeal. However, my point is in, in the contemporary environment, uh, you know, publishers are not vetting this material. And this goes back to the notion of tradition. You know, they're not vetting it. They just, they just ask, okay, will this sell? And how many copies can we sell? And how many copies as you as an author can you sell? Yeah. So you know, that's their business. And going back to the future, you know, we look around, we don't have that many temples. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Buddhists do in this country. The Mormons do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses do. Why, why don't Western occultists? Because they're lazy. <laughs> and selfish and cheap. <laughs> well, it's true. Mm-hmm. I'm not, well, I've been doing this long enough. I don't have anyone to be nice to anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the reality. That's why they're not there. If they truly believed in this, truly, and we're planning for their children and their children's children, there'd be more tangible resources being put into tangible results for long-term continuity. So what kind of tangible resources um, would you recommend to make esotericism sustainable? Well, you, you have to become involved in a group. You have to work with other people in some mm-hmm. way. And hopefully that's going to be local. I've always advocated local as much as possible because sustain, you know, esotericism is like politics. It's always local. Sustainability and locality are almost interchangeable Mm -hmm. because it has to do with access. Uh, If not, there are some things online you can do, but that gets tricky there. You know, at the Institute for Medic Studies, you know, we've been doing this for 20 years and now we're saying, how are we going to do this for 20 more? How many groups do you know that are asking that question? A couple, but not very many. There, aren't, right. even, there aren't even that many groups around. You That's know? my point. So how, how are we going to be doing this? How, what are we going to be doing 20 years from now is the question our board is asking, and how are we going to do it? So we have a fundraiser going for our endowment. You know, and an endowment means invested money. Now, I know you and I talked about this briefly on Wednesday, you know, I said, well, well, how does this fit into this vision? You know, and the vision is that, well, look, a lot of our folks, they've given up their hands. They said, you know what? We're on this slow collapse. Everything is coming to some vague end anyhow. Why should I do anything? That's it. I mean, they've given up. 
And let me tell you, those aren't occultists I want to be around. You know, it's better to live as a uh, one day as a lion than a life as a sheep. Because you're not going to make the philosopher's stone unless you're a lion. Yeah, we got to start getting breeding lions here. Right. Well, the way I see that that whole um, vision of the of the possible future for me, it gives me more impetus to do stuff to like actually get stuff in place to be a seed bearer for the future and to not just you know i mean this is the chance we have to save what we want to save what we think is valuable you know that's correct and that's that's the point that i'm making is okay well then either you're doing something or you're not because what's going to happen is the future is going to happen either way yeah (laughs) So either you you either are planning to fail or you're failing to plan. Yeah, I like that. And most occultists fail to plan. So then they just fail. Now, I know this is hard and this is difficult to hear, but it's the reality. So is it we because have to start- they're so focused on themselves, you think, and on yes. their own spiritual path, they're not really thinking about and, others and in the future? Correct. And excuses for their failures instead of looking in the mirror. You know, they want the magic to do for them what they don't want to do for themselves. And that's where the angels and the demons come in as real problems. You know, they're looking for these other entities to do for them, which they're too lazy to do for themselves. And as was said to me decades ago, neither God nor the devil appreciates has use for a lazy man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and they'll eat you alive on that part. You know, so you, you have to really be willing to get in there and, and make a difference in your life and the lives of others, but at least in your life and have a life that you feel was worth living and leave something behind with. But we have teachings who don't even talk about that reality that, you know, when you get a teaching, you have to ask, where did it come from? How do you do it? What will the results be? Mm-hmm. And when we ask those results, we mean, what will the results be in this life and in when I'm dead? I mean, we have people talking about reincarnation, but they don't really believe it because if they did, they'd be asking, well, you know, where am I going to get these teachings from in the present or in the future? Where is that reincarnation going to take place? They just leave it up to chance, which means leaving it up to instinctual habit and impulse. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's really what it is. So, you know, if you if you really, truly are planning for the future, you've got to do something. Now, people say, well, you know. You can invest this money, but what about this, that, and the other thing, this economy, that economy? Look, someone's always going to have money. Yeah. We're not going to be entering some Mad Max world. And if we are, this discussion won't matter anyhow at that point. (laughs) So no matter what happens in this future direction, how are you going to have the resources? And some of that is going to be money. Some of that's going to be books. Some of that, you know... Very little of it, honestly, I think is going to be, is, and I have friends who strongly disagree with me on this, uh, is going to be your hard drive. Uh-huh. And, and the reason I say that is hard drives are wonderful for storage, massive amounts of material, but I think we all know they're terrible for retrieval. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just terrible. You know, whether you find the stuff, you can't find the stuff, the file gets corrupted, the file path is corrupted. You know, you and, and there are many of us who can find something in a book far easier and faster than in a PDF. And that's a skill you're going to get back again, because you have to learn how to read. There is yeah. an initiatic process in dealing with a book. There is not, an, there's actually a counter initiatic process involved in dealing with PDFs and all this electronic stuff. That's for yeah. another discussion. But the initiatic process 
involves that. What is that transmission of information, both in the written form and in the oral form and in the experiential form? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's very important. Um, and I also very much agree with you on books, you know, like having real books is way better than having stuff on your hard drive. You can I mean, drop a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah right. <laughs> hard drive can get f- fried in one minute, you mm-hmm. know, plus there are only so many rare earth minerals that go into making these, you know, <laughs> chips and processors and stuff. Well, that, and that's, again, another story for another time. Uh, yeah. But if you're, if you're really concerned about your spiritual path, that means you're concerned about your awakening and how and when that's going to take place. Mm-hmm. If, excuse me, if you're really concerned about the path, then this is something you want available to others. Yeah. And if you really want it to be available to others, and that may include yourself in the future in some not so distant future life. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the high fructose corn syrup catches up with you that at, <laughs> at, at this point, you know, to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Well, you know what, if you didn't do anything for anyone else, you got no karmic cash to sit on. You've got yeah. nothing in that bag. And I want that to be very clear. If you are not trying to provide for yourself for the future and for others in this domain, no one owes you anything. You have to be an adult and take care of yourself and take care of those around you who are on this path with you. There well, are a I lot of those... people. There were a lot of people that were rejected at the doors of the temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was not some open door policy. Yeah. And those are very harsh words, but I think they point to a very important truth. Well, they do. And it needs to sink in so that there's a future for many people. I don't have any, I don't have any problem under with myself and people I know. We know that we'll have access to this at any time. We, we have the proper energetic connections, say karmic connections. What's karma means habit energy move an energy that is moving forward to fruition out of habit yeah meaning repeatedly done so we have that in place we know that we'll recognize each other in the future this isn't going to be a problem for a lot of other people out there it's going to be a disaster because no one's told them this you know and so they need to hear it and they need to know it's time to grow up now you know, you want to be an adept and adapt. And this is to get a little symbolism. Here. It basically means you're 21. You're in a, you're a, uh, an emancipated adult in the universe. You can finally drink the, the alcohol of immortality. You can, but. you can drink and drive and vote and get drafted and all those things. At one time, 21 was the age for all of that. Mm. Uh, 21 was the age for uh, essentially for voting and, and being drafted. They, then they lower the draft to 18 sometime in, uh, I think it was 41 or 42. And then it stayed there. But, um, you know, so 21 is an important symbolic number, particularly in Kabbalah. Mm. Uh, essentially, we're saying that you can, the idea of someone being a, an adept, a genuine adept, meaning initiative Tifereth, we'll say don't want to get off on that language 
a solar adept, a solar adept would be 21. That would be very rare, if not impossible for that to happen before then. And, and while there may be adepts reborn, as we say, even a tolku needs to be educated, as they say in Tibetan Buddhism in the sideline. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you are, you, so that tolku needs to be educated. Think about that. Where are you going to get your education from? They go out and look for these folks. And of course, the tolku isn't universally accepted, by the way. You know, there's problems with that system. But the reality is they go out and they look for them and they have systems of education in place for them. What do you got? <laughs> yeah. Really? Well, I, what do you got? They're very, yeah. These are important questions for people to consider. I say beyond consider, act on them. You yeah. got to stop the thinking. And it, the time to act was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. There's mm-hmm. still some time. We can still pull some of this out, but it's, this is, you know, and when we talked, I said, you know, I would, I would, I would hammer this point home to the point of rudeness because (laughs) I don't care either, either you hear this message and you get it or you don't. And if you don't, then (laughs) there's no loss for me, but if you get it and you get involved and that can be with the Institute or not. That can be with anything. That can be with you guys and whatever you're doing. Right. Then the energy is moving. Then you've got something moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, and just to hammer that point one more time, I think it's very important for people to get involved with small groups or, or big groups, but personally involved, put the skin in the game and start working and not just looking at the future and what the end goal is, but start working towards it. Well, that's it. And, you know, you can, you can do a lot with uh, five to seven people. Seven is about the minimum to work with, just speaking mm-hmm. from experience. But you can do a lot with less, but seven is good. You hit about 12 to 13, you're in a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, when you reach up to 24 to 25 people, you're now in a really good place, extra sweet, because now you have people to do things and you have resources to do things. And when you hit around 50 to 75, uh, it's going to take a lot of full-time organizational skill sets. You have to be very skillful to manage those types of groups and people and how you um, get them to interact and divide. Most people don't have that problem by the way, but you know, and then, then you see if you are fortunate enough and I have been in groups like this, when you, when you're in a lodge with about 100 to 150 people, um, you know, you've, you've got some real resources at your disposal. And then you have to plan accordingly and invest, invest accordingly because they won't always be there. Yeah. You know, then you have to make, take advantage of the opportunities you've got and, and really focus on uh, resource utilization instead of growth. And a lot of groups fall apart because they, they focus too much on growth. Uh, you've got to grow to the right point and you have to figure out what that right point is for you. But generally speaking, I'll tell you, it's going to be around somewhere between 12 and 25 people. Mm. Yeah. It's manageable and uh, maneuverable, but yeah, not too top heavy or not too. Yeah. Yeah, When you you get up to 144 people, things split. Mm. Uh, And the reason being is it's harder to know everybody. Yeah. 
So if you, you think, you know, 40, 45, 50, 70, like, uh, you know, the old Masonic, uh, Masonic colleges, Rosicrucian Masonic colleges, they were limited to 72 members. You know, that's just, that's just a great number. It's a great number because you know, you can know everyone involved. And yet you don't have to deal with everyone involved too. You know, there's enough activities and things to do where, you know, you don't always have to deal with everyone. And if somebody is um, not a good fit for the group, how do you, um, how do you ask them to leave? Or like, what, what does your process look like for that? Well, that, you see, that's the thing. You have to do that ahead of time. You've really got to take your time getting people in the group. And then you have to have a process where they get to reveal themselves over a one to three year period, you know, before you get them in any position of authority. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be, how well do they volunteer? How well do they sweep the floor? I mean, someone's got to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, how well do they, how well do they handle the grunt work? You know, someone's got to do that. You know, it's going to be how well do they, and, and at that point, then you just decide, okay, well, they're very good at this, but they're not good at this. And just like any other organizational management skill. I mean, I know people who, and I say this in all seriousness, I would not trust with my house plants. <laughs> they're great. I'll go out to dinner with them. I like them, but I, I wouldn't trust them with my house plants. Mm-hmm. So it's just like anything else. The problem is people get too desperate to grow a group or they get too desperate to get people in and they don't have a filtering mechanism. Yeah. Right. You know, you, you, you automatically join and next thing you know, you're in this ritual work with other people in robes and all this stuff. Well, you got to have a slow process to bring people in, a slow process uh, to let them decide if they're a good fit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they get to meet everyone in a social setting but you don't get to meet everyone in a ritualistic setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, assuming you're doing ritual work, that is assuming that. Right. And there's, and that's also the importance of like face-to-face interaction and like local groups, because there you can tell you, you can get to know somebody through the internet, but you, there's like a whole other kind of knowing in the face-to-face and like the body knowledge and the vibes you know listen i I got a friend who he is just spectacular and if you read what he wrote if you listened to his music you would think this guy is just something else and he knows all these great nyingma llamas from back in the day back in the 70s early 70s out in berkeley well this guy's toast you know, I mean, if you if you sat down and, and met him, you know, you'd say, is this the same guy that made that music? Is this the same guy that wrote that book? I mean, he knows all these people and we, we, we like his company, but but he's toast. I mean, he tells great stories, but you wouldn't trust him with anything. You wouldn't give mm-hmm. him any responsibilities. Yeah. And you, you won't know that until you meet him in person. Right. And I know a lot of people like that. And I know a lot of people who I, I would trust, but they, they can't get it into their head that maybe somehow they have 
that this would be beneficial for them to to do a little bit of group work on an esoteric level but it might be a little helpful for them in the long run you know not a, a lot of hubris yeah well it's a, it could be a lot of things you know it could mm. be hubris could be maybe um who knows i, I can't say i could probably think of half a dozen reasons but but the point is that you you have to have a mechanism of slow absorption it's like charging a battery you know we've created this environment where people treat everything like friends with benefits you know there's no real relationship yeah there's no the rea- but what we're talking about here is the alchemical marriage mm. you know it's monogamous you know it's it's permanent it's for keeps and when we do that with groups it may not be permanent or for keeps but it may be for more than one lifetime yeah so you know you, you can't just let anyone in and right I, to... I think i heard this from you but um the uh, podcast you were on but you're talking about how the the people that you spend the most time with um well you become like them oh exactly so you have to pick your friends carefully and like the people you work with in a group carefully oh like like your grandmother said i i know you by your friends mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now i know a lot of people I know a variety of different people and I know them for different reasons. And I keep different types of friends for different reasons, Mm -hmm. but I also know how to keep my distance from them. You understand? Right. Because their, their habits, their inclinations, uh, their vices of choice. I don't want them to be mine. Right. But there's other aspects of the relationship which are very beneficial and informative and useful. But that takes skillfulness. You have to learn how to be skillful with yourself and with people in order to manage that. And that's a transmutational process. You know, that that kind of skillful work is is fairly that's kind of an intermediate process. I don't want to say it's advanced, but it's more like an intermediate thing. Because it's it's easy to just avoid everything. And that's very good in the beginning. You know, we avoid things. We have a path of renunciation. We avoid those things which are toxic to us and bad to us and are going to keep us from moving forward on our journey. Boom, good. Uh, Essentially, what that means is you keep from making your life worse. Then you enter into a path of positive activity. And this is what we don't have a lot of in Western esotericism. And what we do have likes to take the form of political activism, which is just making the situation worse, not better, because it's not about that. It's about you as an individual and what you're sacrificing and what you're doing and what you're helping others with, not what you're telling others to do. Okay, so if you're taking food to the soup kitchen or, or cutting a check for, you know, 100 or 200 or $1,000 to, you know, help uh, the homeless or, or anything else, something other than your political cause, you know, that's a good thing because you made that choice. And you have to then get involved in trans creating a better environment and creating a better world. And that's what I said earlier, where a lot of these folks who are just into the slow decline model. Oh, you know, it's over and why do anything? They've just shrugged their shoulders and given up any responsibility. But they're they're not even going to they're not even avoiding the things which are bad for them. They're enmeshed in them, enmeshed in them, because they're still basically 
negative and pessimistic and they're not doing anything to transform, but so they're, they're screwed. I mean, really that in terms of a path, it's over. So, you know, you have to avoid the things which are destructive to you. You have to then go out of your way to do things which are beneficial to you and others in this karmic sense. And then finally, you have to learn how to transform negative things, meaning things which are highly energetic and highly toxic, as we talked about in alchemy, into something useful. Mm, yeah. And that is, that is a tricky path. That is a dangerous <laughs> thing to get into prematurely, but it can be done. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, I think we've touched on most of the the topics that we wanted to talk about. Um, but and it all related any... back to plant work too, you see. <laughs> well, yeah. Are there, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Before no, we, that, uh... just that this, that this is the point. At the end, it all related back to plant work too. Yeah. You know, how do we deal with the toxicity in plants? How do we deal with the toxicity in, in ourselves, which is energy? you know, strong energy. How do we deal with the toxicity in, in a situation or an environment or a group? You know, that's part of the transformational process. Hmm. So all of this, it exists on a multitude of uh, experiential potentialities. Notice I avoided the word levels, <laughs> experiential <laughs> potentialities. And, um, and, and we have to actively seek them out and engage them it, it, for our journey to be, uh, potent and meaningful and effective yeah well i think that's 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 a great uh image to leave to leave uh, the listeners with um and i really want to thank you again uh for being on the show it's been an honor um and i'll post links to to your institute and, and to your books and and so on on the show notes um but yeah thank you again well, thank you very much. It was great to be here. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.